Good morning, listeners. You are tuned into the 3CR Gardening Show. We are live on air this beautiful Sunday morning. My name is Chloe Foster, and with the with me this morning is author and horticulturalist, the amazingly bouncy A.B. Bishop. I'm bouncy, am I? Always bouncy. Uh, I, d- I don't actually feel like I was bouncy this morning, um, given that we're only a week into daylight savings. <laughs> and But I have had one of my caffeine hits this morning, so I'm, I'm starting to get bouncier, I well, have to say. No excuses now. <laughs> no excuses, that's Daylight right. savings, getting used to it. Is a struggle. It's dark in the morning again. Oh, I know. There's some for some reason it does throw everything out of whack for a little while, doesn't it? Totally. It's just and even things like our chickens. So I'm now feeding them an hour earlier, and I go out and they're like, "What? What are you doing? It's only seven o'clock." <laughs> so what do they? What do they think later on in the day? They're like, "Rip up." Early dinner. Yeah, well, well, no, they, no, they just hang around much later, and so we let them out. So they've essentially free range. I mean, they've got a the world's best chicken enclosure anyway. They've got it's something like twelve meters by twenty four oh. meters, and they can wander around there and and enjoy themselves. But we also let them out into the main part of the uh, garden, and they go fossicking through the bush for a lot of the day. And um, yeah, but now, of course, it's kind of. Um, they are still hanging around outside early when we're starting to to move inside mm. instead of going to bed. And they, <laughs> I'm like, come on, girls, into bed you go. But no, they just want to hang around. Do they slow down with their laying uh, over oh, winter? Or totally, yeah. They pretty much all went off the lay for longer than usual. Bizarrely, right. um, was yeah. And it was funny because this time last year when we had our first COVID uh, and everyone went nuts for, for eggs in the supermarket and they're yeah. out of eggs. Our girls all stopped laying. I'm like, come on, if ever there was a time where you need to lay eggs, it's now, girls. I'll pay you double. Performance but anxiety. Exactly, yeah. So they're, they're all they're coming back on slowly. Um, and, and, of course, it is all related to um, how much light there is in the air um, or how much light there is, I should say. So, um, yeah, but they, they're coming back on the lay now. And not that that's the reason why I – keep them I have to say because they're just such good pets and they're all um, they're all very individual personalities <laughs> and um, yeah I, lo- I love them all individually. They are very cute and they do make tasty eggs I will vouch for that. <laughs> you, have yes, given me some of your some, eggs yes. before and they're awesome <laughs> they're very very yummy nice yep. bright yolks. Well, we must say good morning to the third person joining us today, um, Emma Hurd. Good morning and welcome landscape architect and horticulturalist. Emma has been on has been answering our phones for quite a few years now and we've roped her into the studio. <laughs> this is the second time you've been in, Emma. So I'm so glad you're on. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's very nice to be here via Zoom. <laughs> yes. <laughs> You're tucked up at home, so that's really good. You didn't have to travel this morning. Yeah, lucky me. Yeah. Not to have such an early rise, although it was still nice to get up early and I'm in Alinda and it's nice and misty this morning, so it's a good opportunity to get up and start the day. Yeah, it would be absolutely beautiful up there at this time of day. Isn't it always misty in Alinda? Yes. Yes. Nothing out of the norm, really. Especially first thing in the morning and not in summertime, but pretty much all year round. Yes, 
that's true. It's a very um, – well, actually, I was talking about it yesterday. I did talk for the Fernie Creek Horticulture Society on easy-to-grow Australian plants, but the two things that I started off banging on about was uh, climate and soils and those two things being the main drivers for plant species distribution. And we're talking about the hills in Fernie Creek, which is near you. Mm. And um, there was a couple of members that actually live up in the hills, but um, everyone came from everywhere. And, yeah, we're talking about the coolness, the cool temperate climate up there, up the top of the mountain, and then compare that down the bottom of the Mm. hills Mm. and over to where you are. It's a little bit drier and not as cool. Drier and rocky. What sort of soil have you got, Em? It's fairly clay-based, but the top soil, the top probably 300 millimetres is a nice kind of friable loam. Mm -hmm. Um, Very little sand, so much more, much humus much more humus kind of loam. Yeah. Um, but like nice and rich once you can break up the clay a bit. Okay. Okay. And what do you tend to grow there? Are you a, a native buff? I do like natives, but there there aren't a lot of them. We've been living here for a year, so we've inherited the garden and there we've got um, at the top of the block a lot of mountain ash and beneath the mountain ash it's, it's grassed area. So we're very keen. There's a there's a local council program that involves revegetation. So we've jumped on board to get a lot of new native species, or they're not new to the area; they're mm. endemic to the area. But we're going to plant them to try and rebuild the the understory, and then eventually rebuild the midstory. So you can grow natives, but because of the mountain ash, they need to be shade tolerant natives. Yeah, and, and I mean, Absolutely. of course, one of the things, a lot of people come into the nursery, so you guys know I'm at Karanga Nursery, and when they're allowed to, they, they come in, <laughs> and, and um, they say, oh, what, what can I grow in the shade? And it sort of seems like a situation where people think, oh, there's not going to be much that grows. But, of course, a lot of Australia is covered by forests, and a lot of our plants are certainly shade tolerant and that's the conditions that they tend to prefer uh, so I'm sure you'll find you have quite an incredible palette up there in the hills yeah and the amazing thing is you can grow sun loving plants in the shade and they will change their habit completely they just they, they won't um, they won't die by any means mm. and they might not flower as much mm. but they'll certainly grow and they might just become more prostrate or you know they'll just do something different mm. so it's always worth trying things that you wouldn't ordinarily think as long as you've got a getaway getaway plan for them you know if they if they start to look a bit poorly you've got somewhere sunny to to parachute them to. <laughs> I like that. (laughs) So what are your some of your favourites? I really love um, Kunzia. Mm -hmm. Mm. Really beautiful, especially the variegated one. I think that adds, especially in the shade, because variegated things tend to add a little bit of brightness. Absolutely. Um, In my view, that is the only spot a variegated plant should be put in a dark corner at the back. (laughs) Where you can't see it very often. (laughs) You're not alone. You're not alone in that thought. They do add it, they do add a pop of brightness in a shady spot. And they generally don't need as much sun either. And whether that's to do with the variegated foliage, I don't know. It's possible. Yeah. 
Actually, and one of the plants I brought in today, and I'm going to hold it up to my camera oh, so hopefully yeah. you can see it, and I'll I'll take a photo and send it to Liz to put on the socials. Uh, it's a one of the daisy bushes. So this is um, Oliaria, Oliaria lorata. I always say that wrong. Or Illyria. Illyria. <laughs> always say it wrong. Illyria <laughs> lorata. And it's, oh, man, this time of year, I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure it'll be indigenous to you up there. Yep. It's we about have them growing. Yeah. It's, and they, they will self-seed. Yeah, they, they certainly do. And although, interestingly, being a daisy, they're not really a um, – a food plant for the adult butterfly. They're certainly the food plant for various species of butterfly and moth larvae, um, as is attested by the piece that I brought in today, um, (laughs) which has been munched by all sorts of critters. But it's a fantastic screening plant for sort of lightly shaded areas, and that's where it grows naturally in the bush around our place. And I've included it in our white garden. I'm creating a white garden bush garden essentially so it's all um, plants that obviously have white or cream flowers and because it's sort of a little bit away from the house um, moving more into the bush area of course I'm only using um, truly indigenous plants and it's one of the yeah it's just beautiful especially this Mm. time of year it has clusters of small daisy flowers and it's a probably a large shrub gets to approximately three meters and if you want to have a sort of a light screen where you can see through a little bit it's not it's certainly not a dense screen by any stretch of the imagination but um, uh, it's got beautiful long green leaves and yeah this time of year those huge clusters of daisy like flowers all over it Um, so is that the snowy daisy bush is that I'm hopeless. Common <laughs> names. names. That sounds like yeah, right, it, it gets yeah. absolutely covered in white flowers. Yeah, and it is, they're they're covered. Stand right out now. this time of year. Absolute yeah, stand yeah. Out. So so that's obviously indigenous to you, Em. Is that right? It is. Yeah, yeah. Beautiful. And up here, it tends to go a little bit grey with um like a bit glaucous mm-hmm. leaf, mm-hmm. which is really nice as well. So it goes from that um really beautiful bright green leaf to a grey leaf. In the, I think in the summertime. Yeah. Yeah, beautiful. Interesting. Now, Emma, I said before that you are a landscape architect and horticulturalist. Can I tell you that is a beautiful combination? <laughs> because, and I, I'm, I think it's still like this today, landscape architects are the loveliest people in the world, but they don't teach you about plants at landscape architect school. Yes, this but is you, true. You did horticulture, did, you did horticulture after your architecture degree? No, I did it first. Right. Yeah. So, so where did you do your horticulture studies? At, at Burnley at Melbourne Uni. Oh, one of those. You must have been one of the last. <laughs> you snob. <laughs> you must have been one of the last um, classes that went through doing horticulture at Burnley. I think there was another three or so years after us, but yep. um, it was definitely uh, – so I did what was called an associate degree. So it was only two years instead of the full degree. By the time I was going through, the full degree was phasing out. They were in their final year. So they were the last group that were going through. Um, And so we we still had classes with them, but we weren't with them. Yeah. So, Emma, out of interest, what plant uh, knowledge did you learn in landscape architecture? Um, so I did get credits for 
two of the subjects Mm -hmm. because I had horticulture. Mm. Um, So I couldn't tell you what they learned in that class, but there was one class that I had to do that was about trees. And the assignment was go out, find 10 trees, name them and come back and let us know what they are. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And that was it. <laughs> that's so good. Just 10, 10 trees. Yeah, that, 10 trees. That sounds about right because I might get in trouble here. Landscape architects, they have about 10 trees <laughs> and they just use them on rotation. Yeah, and I think something that um, reinforces that level of knowledge within the industry is sometimes um, going in, you become heavily reliant on lists that are provided by local council or governing bodies or EVC lists, which they are very useful lists. But if you don't have plant knowledge to discern, you know, what's a a really big tree? What's a small tree? Mm. What's a tree that likes swampy conditions? You know, all the Mm. the little nitty gritty details, you'll end up using the same thing over and over again and just sourcing them from a council list that is maybe two decades old. Yeah. They don't update their lists that often. So sometimes they're not, which honestly councils have gotten a lot better with in the last five or so years. Yeah. And I think from an aesthetic or a design point of view, uh, sticking to trees that you know work in a certain area that might have a narrow habit um, you know, mm. it doesn't have a super invasive root system, blah, blah, blah. Well, if that mm. works, then you may as well stick to it. Yeah, it can do. Although the number of times people just put in pairs, you know, ornamental pairs, oh where, you think, yes. where you think really just about any other tree would have done better <laughs> than an ornamental pair. But yes. that's what's gone in, so... Oh, they're, yeah, they've been overdone. I, I've had to steer people away from ornamental pears quite a few And they're times. well, they're well loved. Mm. I don't have anything against them, but mm. they're just, I think they're done too many, too often. Too and arborists don't like them. I have an issue with them too, because they sucker any sort of root damage at the crown of the, the base of the trunk or to they the roots certainly. at all. And they sucker. And once that happens, it's gone. You can't get it un- under control again. Yeah, they certainly do. And um, they're, they're not great. Like the possums, if, if there's a tree that possums love, it's ornamental pears <laughs> and they will, they will develop a whole campsite or a whole colony of possums in these ornamental pears. Yep. Whereas, you know, lots of other trees, they just pass through. Yeah. I think also that might be because so many people use them and the possums eventually get a taste for them and that I mean yeah. that's the situation with lots of different um, ornamentals exotic ornaments or natives for that matter yeah. uh, possums that they might not be used to them but they get eventually get a taste for them and then yeah it's all over yeah it's almost like we're creating a little monoculture in our urban environments and and it's no wonder that they develop a taste for it yeah yeah and and i'm sure um ornamental pear leaves are much uh juicier than eucalypt leaves definitely oh, that would be so soft so much nicer yes yeah <laughs> it would be so much yeah. nicer. 
Actually, one of the books that um, I use time and time again, and I think I have mentioned it on the show before, is um, a book called Grow What Where. I feel like it should be essential. I feel like they should just give it out free to every landscape architect. Yeah. Because even though it's native plants, they use about 3,000 species of native plants, and it's a, it's a book by Natalie Peet, Gwenda MacDonald, and Alice Talbot. And it's literally just lists of plants, mm. but it's for every conceivable uh, situation you could think of. If you've got dry shade, if you've got wet shade or moist shade, if you've alkaline got alkaline soil, alkaline soil. If you want pink flowers, if you want white flowers, yep. it's if you want to attract butterflies. Every they have covered every scenario. They have in that it's, book. It's is brilliant, incredible. Yeah, you, I use it all the time. You do have to know your botanical names, though. Yes, that that's the only sort of downside. But um, if you, I mean, you could. <laughs> still go to it and then look it up because it puts it into shrubs up to two meters and mm. then trees and small trees mm. and large trees so it really does break it down for you yeah. um and and worth the trouble of working out what the common names are to yeah. go with the plant it's still in print and it's still available in yep. most bookshops um it even comes with a cd rom oh it does too <laughs> yes yes how bizarre love <laughs> me too i, I love when we were going through Burnley, they they gave us a CD-ROM of all the of all the plants we learnt at Burnley, and I still regularly look at it. <laughs> we used a program called Plant File. Have you either of you ever heard of that? No, no. It's, it's just a, a massive database of plants with every like le- the leaf shape, what the leaf margin mm-hmm. is, cultivation requirements, the names of the shape of the flower and the fruit and blah blah. It's really handy when you're putting together plant culture sheets for your botany classes. Um, developed by a guy in Queensland, I think, um, with photos and everything. I don't use it as much anymore, but when I was studying it was my go to resource. Mm. Absolutely love it. Was that C D? It was a CD. <laughs> a CD How wrong. bizarre. I know. <laughs> And computers don't come with CD-ROMs anymore no. or, or disk drives, so I have this little plug-in USB oh, <laughs> um, disk drive that you can plug into any any computer without one. Yeah, it's very retro of you, Emma. Well, my, yeah, my, my computer is still old enough that it's still got a CD-ROM attachment to it. <laughs> that that is old. I'm surprised it's still I know. going. I had to get a totally new hard drive for it last year, but it's still going. still going, still playing. Well, it's only it's only been in the last maybe two or three years that they've done away with CD ROM drives. Thank so. you, Emma. Yes, it is. So no one, no one here's old. Don't worry, no one's old. <laughs> I am. <laughs> hey, Emma, what are you growing up there in terms of are you growing any veggies and produce plants? So veggies have been tricky. Like I've been trying to get the lay of the land and the best sun aspect. Um, a lot of a lot of the block used to be grazing land for a couple of horses, mm-hmm. so it's a bit compacted in some areas. Um, so we have tried to grow. We tried some brassicas this season, and I think I added them in too late. So we've been feeding the leaves using the lovely leaves. Mm-hmm. Um, but we did not get any florets this year. However, I've grown some good leeks. Mm-hmm. They've enjoyed the, the rich soil um, and some rhubarb. That's enjoyed the rich soil. And that's kind of – and tatsoi. Oh, nice. I haven't grown Asian tatsoi veg. before. Is that similar to bok choy? Is it one of the – Yes. One yeah. of the brassicas? Yeah. Ones? Yeah. 
and it's it's really lovely. It's very um, sort of like water chestnut flavor. Oh, nice. Mm, yummy. Really nice. Very yummy. Yeah. We will get back to your garden and you and UAB in a minute. There's a couple of um, community announcements that have come through. So uh, very good supporters of our show, Open Gardens Victoria, have a couple of events coming up. So on Wednesday the 13th of October, they have an online Bush Foods for Beginners workshop with our very own Karen Sutherland from Edible Eden Design. It's this Wednesday night from 7.30 to 8.30 p.m. Tickets are $30. If you want to join in on the fun of identifying and talking about bush foods, go to the Open Gardens Victoria website. It's opengardensvictoria.org.au and follow the links to their events. The other online uh, workshop that they have on is talking about medicinal plants with Dr. Kevin Lee. This is on Thursday the 21st of October from 7.30pm till 8.30pm. It's $15 and Dr. Kevin Lee will be discussing the history and uses of medicinal plants. Um, It's his field of interest um, for his uh, career and studies. So same website address again opengardensvictoria.org.au and follow the links to book via um, try booking for that um, there is one more the friends of burnley gardens are running an online illustrated talk by stuart reed on the three s's <laughs> singapore spain and sydney how botanic gardens remain relevant Wednesday the 20th of October is the date for this one from starts at 7 I don't know 7 for 7:30 so 7 7 o'clock start uh, it is via Zoom you can book now hang on let me get this website address correct <laughs> www.trybooking.com forward slash b u l d z bulds interesting trybooking.com forward slash B-U-L-D-Z if you're interested in going to Stuart Reed's online uh, webinar. Um, he is incredibly knowledgeable and who doesn't love talking about botanic gardens? So give that a go. That is all the community announcements for this week. God, so, it's sad, isn't it? Like, it used to be reams and reams. Like, we used to spend half an hour just reading out all the community announcements. <laughs> I know. I can't I wait know. till that happens again. Oh, amen, sister. <laughs> man. I feel like cabin fever at the moment. Yeah. Let's just call it that. I think, yeah, everyone's the same. Can I, can I add in one other little community announcement? Yeah, um, go for it. We want more. <laughs> yeah. On behalf of Encouraging Women in Horticulture, um, which I'm a, a committee member of, we are running our scholarship currently. So any females out there studying horticulture that would like to apply for our scholarship, it's open until the 31st of October and um, it offers a bursary of up to $1,000. And another thing that we have running at the moment are two grants. So they are um, 
people that are eligible for our grants are um, apprentices, so any female apprentices out there, as well as um, we offer a business grant. So any females out there that are an employee of a small business or they themselves are running their own small business and would like to apply for this grant, um, both the apprenticeship grant and the small business grant are $500. Fantastic. Encouraging Women in Horticulture truly does what it says it does. That's yeah, awesome. how, how did that come about, that organisation, Em? Because you've been a part of that for since the beginning? Not since the beginning, but close. So um, I joined in 2010, but it began in 2007. And it was started by um, Dawn Fleming and Rosemary Davies among a group of, I think, up to eight women. I don't know all of their names, um, but they were all women that worked in the nursery industry, mostly in wholesale nurseries Mm -hmm. because Dawn Fleming um, moves around in those circles the most, having um, been involved in Fleming's nursery, the tree nursery, uh, with her husband for decades. Mm. Um, Yeah, so that's how it began because Dawn really noticed that there are a lot of women working in horticulture and when she started it, they were mostly behind the scenes. But as we can tell, having three women on a on a gardening panel, There's we can four. see Bernadette's that... doing the phones this morning. Oh, Bernadette, <laughs> wonderful. And she's studying horticulture. <laughs> Great work, Bernadette. Yeah. <laughs> well, apply for our scholarship if you if you would like. <laughs> and so, what what is the, I suppose, the premise of the organisation? Well, so we we stand for women and encouraging them to get involved in any capacity they can. So you don't necessarily have to have um, a degree in horticulture to join. Mm-hmm. You just have to have a keen interest. Mm-hmm. Um, and our events are mostly based on nurseries, gardens, bit of behind-the-scenes tours sometimes. Um, we like to have some forums about, you know, starting your own business or... Um, you know how to how to run your own garden if that's if that's your main focus. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the main thing is getting women together, uh, which has been tricky during COVID, mm-hmm. um, to be able to network and talk about what it's like in the industry. Because a lot of the time, um, women that are running their own businesses are maybe sole operators, or if they're working in a wholesale environment, maybe they're one of um, a an organisation where there's only one or two women in a, in a group of men, which is quite common. Mm. So it's just an opportunity to get together and talk about, you know, the industry that we work in and how we can support one another in it. It's fantastic. Mm. It's really mm. good. Well, that's how I got to know you, Emma, because you, um, yeah. yeah, we just uh, kept uh, keeping in contact via encouraging women in horticulture. Mm. And every now and again I came along to a gig and... Got to meet a bunch of fantastic people, yeah. and and you always learn something, don't you? And I, I have to say, it it is different um, being being around other women in in horticulture. It's certainly um, for me, it really inspires me, and um, because as you say, so often it's just you usually around a bunch of guys, and that's fantastic because of course mm. they've got their own knowledge, but just to be able to share experiences as a woman and um, to see other women achieving. I think it's so important, Mm. even in terms of, as you say, having the three women 
today on the on the gardening show, just having those different voices out on the airwaves for people who are coming through, uh, girls and and young women who who are coming into the industry and and essentially into any industry. Mm. Just about having all those different voices and that diversity of opinions and and everything. I think it's so important. So I really think kudos to encouraging women in horticulture. And, um, yeah, I think you do a fantastic job. Oh, thanks, A.B. Yeah, you're exactly right. It's all about representation and making sure that voices are heard. And, yeah, it's a lot of fun as well. I I really find it inspirational because I like, like a lot of the time in feminism it talks about, you know, lifting up other women and that's what it's really about. Mm. I love being able to say, like, oh, this is what another female in my industry has done. And I think, you know, having that out there really it just it just provides something for all of us to to look to and find inspiration in, which is great. Yeah, mm. for sure. Yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, ladies. Really good chat. Now we must invite our listeners to no, the show now. No, I don't want to invite anyone. You don't want to no, invite no, them? no, no. Let's just keep I talking. I won't put the phone numbers. <laughs> <laughs> you are terrible, Muriel. <laughs> If you haven't got our phone numbers saved into your phones or on speed dial, I'm going to give them out to you now. So the to call up and speak to Bernadette now, because of this remote format that we're doing at the moment, we can't put phone calls through to air, but you can call up and speak to Bernadette this morning. She will put your question through to us in the studio. So that number is 94190155. And we do love using the text line. So if you just want to, well, send a question through a text or send a comment or something, just say hi. You can text us on 0488 809 855. Please save that into your phones because it's a really long number to read out. And I'm going to do it one more time. Uh, 0488 809 855. So drop us a text and say hello. Now that we do have a lot of people that listen to our podcast throughout the week that sleep in on Sunday mornings. And I really, truly do not blame you. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you're listening to the podcast and you have a question or you want to contact us somehow, you can send us an email and our email address is gardening at 3cr.org.au. We are also on Facebook and Instagram Our name is the 3CR Gardening Show on both of those platforms, so you can also contact us that way as well. We've already had one caller come in this morning, um, Anne from Northcote, about coddling moth. Uh, She has a few books and different information, but she's got a quince that has small fruit and hawthorn in blossom. One suggestion is sump oil on a collar. Could she use cooking oil instead? Looking for other ideas. Coddling moth. Mm, very, very tricky. Yeah. So there's a really good video on YouTube that Tino on Gardening Australia did a couple of years ago. So if you type in something like Apple Coddling Moth Gardening Australia into a YouTube search, it should come up with um, Tino's video. I'm just trying to remember what it might have been called, but I can't Controlling quite. Coddling Moth. Is that what it's called? <laughs> <laughs> there's that. There's also another There's also another one as well on YouTube. 
what I he does, what I can remember him doing in that is putting at a certain time of year, laying cardboard around the drip line and the canopy of the tree. And that cardboard stops the larvae of the moth emerging out from the ground and crawling up the trunk. <clears throat> I think yeah, that's people... certainly my understanding too. And that you have to do it two to three times a year to really break the life cycle of mm. the larvae. Yep. So um, any existing mulch or leaf litter that you've got around the base of the tree, just just move it to the side about a metre out or even if it's a large tree, obviously, to the drip line if you can. I don't think cooking oil would work instead of sump oil because mm. the sump oil would just would be that greasy it would just sit there it'd be a greasy layer whereas like, i think the cooking like vaseline like yeah, yeah. well vaseline might yeah. be something yeah you just, um, you just need a essentially a ring around the tree to stop yeah the larvae crawling up and i can remember in that video that tino did put something around the around the trunk of the tree but i can't remember what it was that he used mm. but i mean i think as with any pest or disease for that matter it's about understanding what you're dealing with and I mean even as experts it's tricky because sometimes you you really are just guessing but mm. and again when people come into the nursery and they say oh I, I think I've got something wrong with my um, blah blah plant and I've sprayed it with this and I've done that and I've done that and I said well what have you identified what the actual issue mm. is and they haven't and that is part of the issue we need to work out exactly the enemy that we're dealing with before we can know how to control it because every pest and disease has got different sort of life cycles, those sorts of things. And sometimes the pest, uh, we can get to them when they're at their weakest. For example, as we say with the coddling moth, when they're in the mulch layer, get down, remove that mulch, and it's all about hygiene, especially if you're mm. coming at it from an organic point of view, which many of us want to. Um so it is about learning the life cycle of each particular disease. I know we had we've got one peach tree, which is a, a white peach, and it's quite delightful. And um, as we know, um, the peach leaf curl is a major problem with uh, peaches and, and nectarines, which are essentially exactly the same plant. Just yep. nectarines have got thin skins, yep. and. Um, the the fungus that affects them, the Tafrina deformans, I think it is. You're good. And yeah, I did a, um, a separate subject on it at school. Um, and it's one that really stuck with me because we always had peaches. Yeah. And people will know that if it affects the, the leaves. And when they come out, they come in all curly and sort of a bit gnarled and thickened. And one of the organic controls for that is copper spray. And I used to be one of these people who would get out a couple of times a year and spray the tree. Mm -hmm. And um, the idea being, of course, to spray it before the um, the effect of the fungus, before the leaf burst, essentially. Mm. And um, I did that for a while. And then I read more and more about mycorrhizal fungi. And um, this is fungi. There's, I think there's about 150 species of fungi that live in the soil and they have a symbiotic relationship with different trees and essentially they get um, sugars from the tree in exchange for um, giving the tree minerals and, and a better uptake of water. And 
even something like copper, which we use as a organic control of this particular um, problem, it affects the mycorrhizal fungi. So that mycorrhizal fungi is literally fungi that live in the rhizosphere. So mm. in the area of the plants where the roots are the most active and there's a lot of things going on in the soil there. And um, I, I knew that this copper spray was affecting the mycorrhizal fungi. So I started putting newspaper down to when it dripped on the soil, um, it would get soaked up by the newspaper. I could chuck the newspaper out mm. and then... <clears throat> I just decided one year that I wasn't going to spray anything. And what I started doing was as soon as the leaves emerged that were curly, I picked them off. And the next leaves that, that come through are fine. So I did that for a few years. I just used to go out and pick every leaf off. I don't have peach leaf curl anymore. Mm. Now, I... I Everything that I've read says you can never get rid of it. But yeah. I literally don't have peach leaf curl anymore. And that's simply by going out and being voracious <laughs> about picking off every single leaf that had peach leaf curl. You must have got to that early on because I have a dwarf peach tree and it's it's not as not even as tall as me and it's you know a metre or so wide, very mm -hmm. small. Um, it's had leaf curl for a while. Last year during lockdown, nothing else to do. I picked all the leaves off <laughs> and I thought, oh, great. And I gave it a prune as well to open the plant up, get a yep. bit more airflow going through it. It got a little bit of fruit, but because I pruned it, I didn't get heaps. Mm. Whatever fruit I did get just started to rot straight away. And then this winter, when the, the tree dropped its leaves, the stems had the most awful sappy gumming coming out of them. Gosh. Now this is fruit rot and stem gumming is really severe in happens in really severe cases of mm. peach leaf curl. Uh like the I think the tree is absolutely buggered now. <laughs> oh, poor tree. I know. I I'm a bit of a lazy gardener. I just didn't get onto it soon enough early on. And I did it once, you know, it's one of those things, I did it once last year and I haven't followed up again. Yep. Um, so I'm not quite sure. I'm going to see, there was heaps of flowers on it. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep an eye on the fruit this year and see what happens. I, I do need to go out and, and pick those leaves off mm. and get rid of them. But, yeah, in severe cases, the symptoms that you do see with peach leaf curl is not just the leaves curling, but it's the fruit rotting and this horrible, awful, um, sappy gumming coming out of the stems, which is... Um, a, def a defensive response mm. by the plant trying to get the fungus out out of it. Yeah. Um, and I just looked at it and thought, oh, I'm so sorry, little tree. I haven't looked after you properly. <laughs> is, th that's the dwarf one, is it? Yeah, the yeah, dwarf one. Okay. It's supposed – Definitely no ones... excuses, Chloe. It's not like it's oh, three metres up in the I air that you can't reach it. I know. <laughs> the dwarf ones are supposed to be more disease-resistant too, which is like a total crock. Yeah. Is it <laughs> in the ground or, yep, or in, in the ground? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so it just needs some more dedication and work for yeah. me. I haven't actually gone out because, of course, this time of year is also when the aphids hit. And I have to say, living in the bush, we mm. are not affected by pests and diseases like a lot of people in the burbs are, which is fantastic. Yeah. Um, but we certainly get the aphids on on the peach tree. And uh, this is a time of year where I'll go out and when they start appearing, I just squish. 
yep. put my gloves on and just go through and squish because as soon as those numbers start building up too much, it's oh, it's too hard to squish yeah. and, it's, and it's all over and you end up having to prune off. What do you get aphids on? The peach. Oh, the peach. Okay. Yeah. I haven't. Yeah. I don't. That's one thing I don't get on the peach. Okay. Maybe it's not even that good enough for the aphids to want to eat. <laughs> I was but, going to say with with um, codling moth as well. One of the best things you can do is encourage bird life mm. because mm. the native birds and even non-native birds will eat the larvae. So if you if you can plant things that the birds love in fairly reasonable proximity. And, and hopefully, if there's enough things that they like nearby, they'll stay away from your fruit. <laughs> yeah, good point. So some you could put in some grevilleas or calistamins mm. and what, whatever other mm. exotic plants that, that birds yeah. like to get into. And, and realistically, most of the time you're netting, you're netting your fruit trees to keep things out from them anyway. So regardless of how many bird-loving things you plant nearby you'll probably still need to have nets to keep the birds away from the fruit once it's nice and ripe so Mm. why not encourage them and then get rid of the moth yeah and look if if a few birds help control the moth and they take a little bit of dinner of Mm. your apples for themselves that's okay that's their payment for helping you out with the coddling yeah it's a pretty good trade i think i think so i always leave the apples that i can't reach at the top of the tree i mean this is not a choice that i made but the cockatoos (laughs) smash the apples at the top of the tree and i just take the apples that grow down the bottom that i can reach so that's fine i'm okay with that (laughs) yeah we're and because we're in the bush we've got the the wrens we've got a lot of wrens we've got um oh, we've got heaps of tree hoppers and uh, even the eastern spinebill even though they're nectar feeders this time of the year they're collecting insects for their young uh, although i mean they supplement their diet anyway with insects so yeah the, uh, the more even little birds that you can have around the place um, just to mm. get onto that pest control. And I'm convinced that that's why we don't have the same issues. Even in the veggie garden, we just don't have any issues with pests. Yeah. Although I'm probably putting the moz on myself. I'll probably be inundated <laughs> this year. <laughs> yeah. and, and we do have chickens as well, so they certainly go through. No, well, you've got a huge um, level of biodiversity around yeah. you and that's what is needed in any garden and in area, any veggie patch. Yeah, lots of frogs. We've got frogs, we've got lizards and, yeah, they certainly all munch yep. on those pest insects. Mm-hmm. I don't have a lot of problem with aphids and whether it's because I've got – there's a lot of different plants in the garden and in the surrounding neighbours' gardens as well. I don't know, but we don't tend to see a lot hmm. of aphids. Interesting. Have, yeah. Haven't built up. Hey, Em, have you changed your bird netting for this year? I haven't been using bird netting, but we have just planted an orchard of bare-rooted fruit trees Ooh. over the winter. Um, so we've put in the ground close to 60 different fruit trees. So I anticipate needing to build. <laughs> my my neighbours have said, oh, you won't get any fruit off them. The deer will take them. Mm-hmm. So the oh. next project, you know, I think they're, they're a few years off getting any decent crop from them when, when you've planted bare-rooted trees, but in the in the long term we'll probably have to build some sort of netting uh monstrosity <laughs> yeah, yeah you will so you know that the traditional 
netting, it's now illegal to use that. I assume you yeah. know him. Yeah, so you have to use um, netting that um, you can barely put your finger through just because so many critters get wrapped up in it. Mm. Uh, so you yeah. can't use that anymore. But, yeah, honestly, for, if you live in the bush or near the bush or near where there's deer that comes through, I highly recommend for any produce garden um, creating a totally enclosed space. And it is a lot of work work at the beginning but eventually it certainly pays dividends Mm. our whole veggie garden area is completely enclosed the whole way around and across the top Mm. and if we didn't do that it would just be a a, a free-for-all for for everyone so but so I mean we've got our apple tree grows through it and lemon tree grows <laughs> through it so there's there's stuff there for the critters I mean we're in the bush so there's plenty for them to eat anyway yeah. but uh, yeah it's it certainly deer I mean it's not just about coming and getting the fruit it's they'll just completely wreck the plant itself and I know uh, Loretta, who's on the radio with us quite a bit, uh, Loretta Childs, who lives up in Christmas Hills, she has a big issue with deer up there. And um, she's planted heaps of fruit trees and they've just been completely trounced. So Em, I think definitely bite the bullet, get out there and build yourself a, a decent enclosure around everything. Yeah, Emma, I want to talk yeah. about your fruit trees in a second. We've just had um, Lorraine from Croydon call in um, talking with some well, suggestions for coddling moth. Um, she lived in Wandon and used to have some sheep and she'd put the daggy wool from her sheep around the apple trees and never had coddling moth anymore. She said it acts as a mulch and a fertiliser too. Oh, that's fantastic because wool is high in lanolin, which is the natural oils, which is oh. what keeps sheep dry essentially. So that would make total sense that, it, yeah, in a way it's a bit like sump oil, just um, off, yeah. straight off the sheep's back. A more natural oil. Yeah. Yeah, go find your friendly local sheep farmer. <laughs> yeah. or, or, or just uh, randomly hop over a fence and start shearing a sheep. Yeah. <laughs> um, em, what sort of fruit trees have you put in? You said about 60? Yeah, so um, three varieties of apple, so um and I'm, I'm excited for one in particular. It's a Bob Magnus apple, which I'm, if listeners are familiar with it, it's got a really pure white flesh with a sort of um, ruby red, like concentric circles. Ooh. So when you cut it open, it's really beautiful. And I haven't tasted it before, but I've heard that it's really tasty. So I'm particularly excited for that apple. Um and lots of stone fruit, so nectarines, apricots, plums, um, some cherries, about four varieties of cherries. Um, oh my a goodness! Quince, a mulberry. Oh, um, mulberry trees—they're the best. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Um, and some avocados, which I've heard initially. I thought, oh, they probably won't do too well with the frosts up here but apparently they do harden off and actually Mm. um, produce quite a good crop so um, the deer did get to the avocados um, before I fenced them so they've had the tops bitten out of them but they are regrowing so they'll be kind of uh, um, not good specimens in terms of looks but hopefully they'll still produce yeah did you buy dwarf varieties of the trees or just regular? 
just regular some of them are incidentally dwarf like just what was available so there's I think there's a cherry tree called star crimson which is a dwarf but when they say dwarf I mean it's still three by three meters which in my mind is still a fairly decent sized tree um and not a true dwarf like your little nectarine that you're talking about which only gets a meter by a meter so um it is tricky to get I mean even more park um apricot is considered a dwarf but that still gets three three meters Mm. yeah it's all relative isn't it yeah Mm. any any nut trees or just stick to the fruits um we planted a chestnut tree an almond and a pine nut oh pine nut nut. cool yeah that's a tree obviously (laughs) (laughs) never even thought of it yeah what do you know the genus what genus it's in or no now i'm is that because you particularly like pesto can i just ask yeah oh man pesto man so good i i always thought this is i know it's wrong but i always thought that the pine nuts came from a species of pinus but i don't they do oh they do yeah they do and so it's not it's not really a tree that you conventionally put in an orchard but Mm. we were sort of like oh well you know we're gonna we're going to have all the um, edible things together. So what have we got? Um, Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a conifer. That's... Yeah, pinus, pinaceae. That's so cool. Is that, is that, a, big, <laughs> is that just... a big tree? Yeah, yeah is they are a big quite, tree? It will be, yeah. I think it can get to 10 metres. Hmm. Decent size. Hmm. Very decent size. But very slow growing. Okay. So might not get pine nuts in my lifetime. But. <laughs> no. Well, you might just get enough for one bottle of pesto. <laughs> yes. One yeah. pine cone, one bottle. <laughs> yes. Hopefully, hopefully we can, we can live in hope. <laughs> uh, yeah, we can live in hope. Um, I must remind listeners that you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. I have neglected to say who we are this morning. Whoops, we got carried away. Uh, my name is Chloe Foster, and with me on air today is A.B. Bishop and Emma Hurd. If you have a question for us or you want to contribute somehow, you can give us a call on 94190155 or you can send us a text message on 0488809855. And I will give out our email address again for anyone that's Uh, listens to the podcast or wants to send in a question or a community group and you have an you have some form of event or thing going on that you want to advertise so you can send that to the gardening show email address and that is gardening at 3cr.org.au ab if anyone wants to come to my place and weed they're very welcome Might put a community announcement. You might we give him some on. of your a chook egg or something. Yeah, payment. exactly. Just one. Yeah. <laughs> Just one. We're a bit bit light on at the moment. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes. you just... I just waved a sign at Chloe saying asparagus because I literally (laughs) want to brag about my asparagus plants because I'm... Here's a soapbox. Swimming in asparagus at the moment. It's so, so delicious. I have to say setting aside a single bed for asparagus was one of the best things I ever did. How long ago did you plant it? Uh, Three years now. 
so this is the third year, which means it's really starting to ramp up. So I put in a few crowns and then I also grew a few by seed. So if anyone's thinking of putting asparagus in, now's the time for growing seed. So the the downside to growing asparagus from seed is that you don't know if you're going to get a male or a female plant. So um, asparagus are dioecious. I always want to say dioecious because mm. you say monoecious. So why don't you say dioecious? But people don't. They say well, dioecious. There's, mo- there's the word mono and then the yeah. word die and it's not dio. It's well, it just is in my head. For two. <laughs> Well, maybe your head needs reading. It does, yeah, it definitely does. We know that already. <laughs> yeah, know that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so they're dioecious plants. So essentially you have male flowers on one plant and female flowers on another plant. And definitely the spears that grow um, with the female plants are slightly thinner, but they're perfectly edible and they're still juicy and delicious. They're just a bit thinner than the uh, spears on the male plants. And the female plants also produce the red berries. And I like them because they look pretty, um, but they can uh, self-seed and cause Mm. a bit of overcrowding. But if you want to have an asparagus bed, it's certainly... A good time to do it now for for seed, that is. And then you can put them um, in a temporary bed if you've grown from seed and then work out which are the male plants and which are the female plants. So if you've got limited space and you don't want to have any female plants at all, that's Mm. one way of um, sort of weeding them out, so to speak. And then, yeah, first year you don't harvest anything. You just let the plant put all the energy into growing its roots and settling in so you have to put them in a forever bed yeah and our forever bed is approximately it's probably about 1.2 by mm, let's say six to six and a half meters so it's a decent size bed wow and, and do you put any um any supports in or do they support themselves oh, totally self-supporting oh that's good yeah which is yeah, they're fantastic. Honestly, it's the easiest care veggie after mm. the initial bed preparation. So you want to create a soil that's minimum sort of 20, 30 centimetres deep, dig it over, get a whole lot of organic matter into there. Um, if you're planting crowns, that's you plant them uh, during winter essentially when the plant's not growing and um, you create a a trench and then within that trench you'll put a little mound of soil and and gently uh, tease the crown over that and then pile the soil back on and then as it grows through the mound um, you put a little bit more soil on top until it's eventually at ground level and um, yeah you don't harvest it all for the first year uh, but then after that all bets are off and you, mm-hmm. you essentially you harvest asparagus until the spears are about as thick as a pencil mm. and the diameter of a pencil and then you just let them be and then they'll go to fern so they produce a beautiful ferny foliage which is lovely um, but yeah so it's definitely worth having a forever bed like we had enough asparagus this year for me to make soup which was wow. an absolute treat but uh, even having Fresh asparagus in stir fry and chopped up in salads. It's yeah, so good. One one of my favourite veggies and mm. uh, worth having a forever bed. <laughs> yeah. Wow! Sounds I love delicious. driving through Kuriratt when I'm going down to Phillip Island or something. Ah, and asparagus capital asparag- of the world. Yeah, it yeah. is through all the asparagus farms. Yeah. Your um, <laughs> no, I won't say. It. We'll move on. 
So when they start, when they get bigger or thicker than a pencil, they just get too woody and they're no, not very edible? No, or? not at all. No, opposite. You, you harvest when they're really thick. So what happens is initially at the start of the season, this is when plants are about two to three years old, um, and and like asparagus lasts 30 years, mm. asparagus plants. So it really is for the amount of effort that you put in at the beginning, which really, I mean, let's face it, it's not a lot of effort. Yep. You get years and years and years. And all I do in, in winter is I eventually chop down the ferns. So the ferns brown off, mm. you hack them down, you top dress uh, with a, a bit of either blood and bone, a bit of compost, whatever you've got lying yeah. around the place. And I sow winter greens in there so that the bed's not wasted yep. through winter. Um, but the trick is you have to make sure that you harvest every, everything before the spears start appearing because they really don't like competition. So I do it before they wake up and notice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, what, what was the question? What did you, oh, the, the how the thick the thickness. Yeah. yeah. So at the start of the season, they will send up really thick spears. Uh, so the, essentially the stronger the root system, the thicker the spears that they send up so they'll send up these amazing spears and you can harvest like some of the ones that I harvest are 30 centimeters long even even a bit longer but then the bottom section will be a bit woody yeah Um, I just break them off people have got different things I've got this amazing asparagus knife um, which of course cost a squillion dollars and looks fantastic (laughs) but honestly it doesn't do nearly as good a job as just going in there and twisting the spear off (laughs) so I was very disappointed but anyway uh yeah so thick spears they're super super juicy and then you just sort of get them in the kitchen and I go slowly up the spear with the knife just cutting off a little bit at a time until it's really easy to cut through mm. and then obviously you discard the woody yeah. bit and, and keep the nice bit. And then as the season progresses, so you probably end up getting about eight to ten weeks in the end. So it's not a massively long season but, mm. I mean, then again, neither are cherries and we like to grow cherries. Mm. Um, yeah, and then as the season progresses, the spears get thinner and thinner and thinner until they get to the point where they're about the thickness of a pencil and that's when you leave them alone yeah. and then let them go to fern. Yeah. Yeah, so that they can then put their energy into just sort of recuperating and growing for the following season. There you go. If I'd thought about it, I would have brought you some in yeah, this morning. I, Sorry. Mate, what are you doing? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Chloe. Don't tell me about it and then <laughs> yeah. not bring anything not in. Not no, not fair at all. No, but definitely worth it. A lot of fun. Yeah, and one of those perennial ones where you don't have to turn over the veggie bed every year and do all that, just throw in a bit of compost yep. and they keep growing. They keep growing. Yeah, sounds yep. good. Emma, did you bring in any plants today? Or, I well, did. have you brought in any from your garden <laughs> to your desk? I did. So I brought in a little Corridalis. Um, I don't know, one... don't know what that is. Yeah, you're talking to two natives. <laughs> We're both no, just sitting here with blank looks on our faces. This one's not a native. It's a little perennial, so yeah. it dies back in the winter time. Um, but it's it's very pretty. This one's called porcelain blue. So, so what is it? I, sorry, I missed the genus. Uh, it's Corydalis flexuosa. Oh, Corydalis. Corydalis. Yeah. So is uh, it like a that's a proper Wedgwood blue flower. Yeah, so that's what I love about it because it's hard to find authentic blue flowers. Mm. Um, and I really love blue in the garden. I think it's such a nice contrast with mm. – I like a lot of colour. So mm. um, I, I love 
all color, but I think it goes so nicely with like a hot pink or even white. Um, And so this, it's got sort of fern like foliage um, that's really dainty and pretty. Yeah. And it gets a profusion of flowers from about, it's been flowering for about three months now. Yep. Um, so really it's nice because at the you know it's the end of winter when this comes through and it's one of the first things to pop out through the through the cold ground mm. and you've got this lovely pop of blue so I highly recommend this plant it's um how big does it get mustn't be huge not not very big so about 30 centimeters by 40 centimeters yeah it's just a it's a sort of a border plant for a, for a cottage garden, mm. and is it a is it a a bulb or corm or? I think it might be a rhizome. Okay, like a like a tuberous rhizome root, um, yeah. a bit like a bit like hosta. Okay, yeah. yeah. I thought you said a bit like Costa. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah okay yeah, it's got a beard that is a really sweet little plant and yeah, those is. yeah little bell yeah. blue bell flowers and i'm just looking yeah. at it now it's in the poppy family oh really yeah okay yeah. well probably not a rhizome then so have oh, you yeah. used it em sorry have you used it in the garden well i've got it in a little cottage garden at the back of my house mm-hmm. um and I like this garden to, like, it, it is fairly, it's a, more of a spring-summer garden mm-hmm. than a winter garden, so it is fairly quiet. And this goes completely dormant, this plant, so it will die down to nothing. So you have to remember where you've popped it mm-hmm. so you don't accidentally, you know, that's one of the things that I have to do is put stakes in this garden bed ah, of where yes. I've put things because otherwise I think, oh, that's a free patch. I can yeah. put it in the <laughs> And I, I inadvertently dig up all my little my little hidden gems under the ground. <laughs> but um, it works really well. I've got some hydrangeas behind it. Um, oh, lovely. And I do love a hosta, so there's some hostas nearby and some um, some heucheras. Oh, so nice. So there's another plant that's growing really well this time of year, beautiful mm. coloured foliage, different variegations. This one's called Ruby Ruby Glow. Um, and it gets the reason it's called that is because of its really lovely bell flowers, really pretty, mm. and they're a bright ruby color. But the foliage the itself is a, yeah. a real feature as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And they you sort d- of, that doesn't take over in the garden? No, not at all. They stay, again, they die back in the winter, but they stay in these perfect little clumps. They're very small, mm-hmm. so they sort of. Um, if you want a lot of them, plant them on mass and they, they provide a beautiful display this time mm. of year. Um, but I tend to like them as individuals because I like to have, this is like a little collection garden. So I like yeah. to have specimens of each type. Um, yeah. So plant collectors really garden. Pretty. Yeah. I, I think gardens of plant collectors or plant nerds, boffins, whatever you want to call us, they're probably the, not the most design, no. well-designed or aesthetically <laughs> pleasing not. gardens yeah. because we want one of everything Yes, for looks, because we want, but we also want to see how it grows exactly. so you can watch it at speed and see how it spreads and flowering times and all that sort of thing. And that's what I love to do in this patch of the garden because then I know for my clients, you know, mm. I can really, 
I can really tell them like, this is what the plant will do. This is how it will behave. And a lot of these plants are not necessarily plants that like a lot of, a lot of people that get garden designs, their main objective is to have something that will look good all of the time. (laughs) So some of these plants are not necessarily what you would put in a, in a designed garden for low maintenance, Mm. which these, these plants are low maintenance, but they, they, they're not showy all year round. Yeah. And that's why I have them in my own garden. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's so true. Um, you know, I have clients as well that want flowers all year round. Mm. Yeah. Um, but foliage can look nice too. Uh, and sometimes it's just nice to uh, not have flowers in your face, hitting all okay. of your senses all the time. Um, it's nice to take a break and let the garden take a break too. And what um, hydrangeas have you got there? So I've got um, plain white hydrangeas, which Mm -hmm. I really like, and they're coming into bud at the moment. Um, And there's a dwarf hydrangea called, I think it's called Miss Muffet. Mm -hmm. And that's really cute as well. And and a miniature flower, which is nice. Not not a massive flower. Um, And and then I also took dendron that's in flower at the moment. Oh, beautiful. And that's just a, a tree rhododendron. I don't know the variety, unfortunately, but it's in full bloom at the moment. And it was the the tree itself was all the way down to the ground and really um, overgrown. So the past week or so, last weekend we started and then this weekend we finished lifting it mm-hmm. so that all the lower branches are gone because they were really impacted by sooty mould. Mm-hmm. Just because it was overcrowded, yeah. this garden bed. Yeah. So if you've got rhododendrons and you've got that issue, highly recommend just prune them back. Don't try and spray them with anything. Just yeah. give them a good prune. No, yeah, the best way to deal with sooty mould is to prune the plant and let a bit of air flow around it, in and around it, and it deals with it pretty easily. Mm. So will you plant underneath the rhododendron now? Yeah, so... Um, have to I cleaned out the worm castings and and applied a lot of worm castings because the worm bin was full which is a lovely problem to have Mm. um and then um added a whole heap of mulch and so hopefully next year this time next year we'll have a bit more soil profile to work with because in the process of weeding out all the things that were beneath this rhododendron took away quite a lot of the um, the, the previous owners had laid carpet beneath it as a weed mat, which <laughs> never do. Just, just like weed mat is bad, but carpet is also not a good idea. <laughs> just cardboard maybe, but not carpet. Oh. So we had to, they also put the underlay in, which is like um, a plastic foam. So we had what? to, you know, get rid of all this plastic foam that was embedded in the soil. Um yeah awful stuff that's horrendous and because it had been there for years pretty much a top layer of soil had to come off with it Mm. um but so hopefully we'll rebuild the soil Mm. and and plant things in there next year because if we try and plant now it will honestly be digging into the root system of this rhododendron too much Good for you for applying a little bit of patience and just waiting and not, you know, trying to dig it up or or throwing in something that's not suited and it's not going to survive very well, you know. It is, 
it is hard to be patient because yeah. you know it's the it's the fun time of year where you see all these amazing plants in flower and you're like oh that and that and that and <laughs> but it's a good opportunity to like you say be be wise and conscientious about what you put in and also to stockpile some things or maybe yeah. take some, take some cuttings yeah and getting to know, know your own property, I think, definitely very commendable. Mm. Did you find, were there many weeds there when you got there, like overrun with any particular um, Yeah, we've got lots of onion weed. Mm-hmm. So, um, and people that have dealt with onion weed will know that they're quite difficult to handle with the little bulbs. Mm. Um, but on the, on the bright side, you can eat onion weed. Um, so... You know that's something. Mm. Um, it's just something that when you're when you're weeding, you have to get the bulb. So it takes a really long time to get through air, large areas mm. of this onion weed. We've also got ivy, um, mm. which is going up a lot of the mountain ash. So having to chop the ivy at the base and then pull it out of the tree. Um, and there's there's all sorts of weeds. There's uh, there's um, blackberries. Mm-hmm. Um, which are tricky as well. And we're doing our best. We're not spraying anything. So we're weeding everything by hand. So it takes more time and it will probably take, you know, multiple seasons Mm. worth of going over the same area again and again before it's cleared. And this in particular, I've noticed there's huge amounts of um, Tradescantia, which um, is really difficult to get rid of. Can I give you a suggestion for that? Sure. Um, Because I have a property as well which has that issue and um, I didn't know what to do with it and it just kept growing and spreading more and spreading more. And um, a guy that I know that's a specialist in getting rid of these types of weeds said just keep whippersnippering it and Mm. keep mowing it. So if if you know it's safe to mow, get in there with a ride-on or a push mow or whatever Mm. you've got, Um, alternatively a whippersnipper, and essentially you just uh, reduce because it grows so quickly and and then it sets um, roots along the node, so it just spreads very, very quickly. Um, but, yeah, the more you whippersnipper it or mow it and mm. reduce that photosynthesizing capability and reduce it from spreading, um, over time it just reduces. And, uh, yeah, so that, that that's my um, plan of attack with mine. And okay. so far going good guns, it stopped, it stopped it spreading and now I'm just trying to reduce the, um, the health of it essentially. Yeah. Is this with onion weed or Tradescantia? Yeah, yeah. same oxalis is the same. If you just keep removing the energy, the the plant has to put take so much energy from the that's stored in that bulb mm. to push up leaves time and time again, and you eventually just wear it out. But it takes yeah. you know, you know, it takes time and consistent a few, effort, consistent attempts for you to do it as well. Yeah, well, uh, we can certainly do that. That's that's a great approach. And the other one, the other weed I'm not sure if you had is the Lamiastrum. Now, I'll see if I can pronounce this. Mm-hmm. Gala Boldolin. <laughs> Gala Boldolin. So, what, what's the common name? Uh, variegatum. Lamium mm. variegatum. Lamium. Oh, a lamium. A weedy yeah. lamium. Yeah. So it, it's got that variegated leaf yeah. and... 
sort of a flower like a flomus. Yeah. Like a yellow flomus. It's it's quite pretty, but it's everywhere. Yeah, it's a type genus for the Lamiaceae family. Mm. Yeah. They would I, I used to um when I worked at, at PGA propagating, we had a few cultivars of Lamium that we grew mm. and every every node pushes out roots of that plant. Yeah. So if you yeah, you'd be ripping finding it out. the mothership that's yeah. the challenge. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that would be a really one a really consistent approach weed yeah. as well. Yeah, it's like the it's one of the mints essentially. So yeah. and yeah. oh hello, puts hand up speaking from experience how much mint spreads so easily and any of the mints, whether it's a native mint or exotic mint, mm. do not put them in the garden bed. They will take over. Yeah, keep them in a pot. Yeah. Yeah, and I think this would have been planted by a previous owner, mm. which, mm. you know, and I can't blame them because it is very pretty. But that's what happens and that's what I'm working on learning as well is what not to plant up here because mm. anything you plant up here will go wild because mm. the soil is so lovely um so i don't want to plant anything that inadvertently becomes a weed <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, girls we've had a couple of um people call in um, i will give out those numbers again and tell people that they're listening to the 3cr gardening show we are live on air this morning uh, if you have a question for us or a comment give us a call on 94190155 bernadette will take your call and post the message through to us um, and from northcote again she's been listening all morning has a question about her Cymbidium orchid. After it's finished flowering, is it too soon to repot? Uh, well, you won't necessarily have to repot unless it needs it. It might just need uh, redoing into the same pot with new orchid potting mix. Mm. Uh, that's absolute key. But orchids really don't mind being pot bound mm. in fact they appreciate it more. they like it yeah they, they yeah. like it so i would consider whether you definitely do need to repot if it hasn't been repotted for a couple of years you could certainly remove it um remove any of the um, potting mix from the roots and um Essentially, it's just really big pieces of bark that you'll be removing from the roots and you can work out what roots are, are living and really healthy and what roots are dead. And essentially, the dead ones will be sort of slightly brown. They'll be a bit spongy. And then if you pull on them, they will just completely give way, whereas um, a root that is still healthy, it's not going to give way at all, whereas a root that is, um, has died or is dying, the, the sheath of it will, will come away. Mm. Um, so, yeah, don't need to repot unless it's completely and utterly root-bound, in which case, yes, you could certainly yeah. do it after flowering. Yeah. Um, and Graham Morrison, one of our regular panellists. Hi, Graham. Hi, Graham. Come and uh, let me guess, he's answering a fruit question. Um, it's something similar to that. I don't know yep. whether you can read the screen there, AB. Um, I'll try to move my microphone over. Uh, there's lots of snails around. Um, and he said he's got a, had a lot of snails on attacking his passion fruit and citrus trees and he's collected oh. over 100 snails. Let me tell you, I have... After really heavy rain we had last weekend or earlier this week or something, um, 
I went outside and there was snails all over the lawn, like up, <laughs> literally up the walls of the house and and on a few plants as well. I collect them and my neighbour across the road has a pet blue tongue lizard, so I take them over to her. <laughs> must be a fat blue tongue. It must be. But last week there was particularly heaps. And Emma, we were, talk- you were, we were talking about it yesterday as well. You've had snails all over your hostas recently. Yeah, yeah. And they they are um, best stealthy because they just come out at night time. <laughs> yeah. So you have to be like them. You have to go out at night time and find them, the snails and the slugs. And, um, yeah, they, they are good for the environment, but I don't want them on my hostas because you'll think you're getting this lovely new leaf coming out and it's already filled with holes as soon as it's unfilled. Mm, damn it. Actually, yeah, yeah I, have, I was listening to... Uh, I was listening to 3W and, and James Wall from Garden World was chatting with Darren yesterday and today and the same thing. People were ringing up saying that their lemon trees are being trounced by snails. Interesting. So it's obviously a thing. I mean, Something that does work is um, the copper tape. Yes. I found that to actually work. I've tried things like coffee grounds and eggshells and doesn't that, work. Hasn't, that hasn't worked. I don't think they care about those. <laughs> they don't. About- We've about what they're climbing on. The um, nutrition subjects at TAFE, where I work, have done trials with coffee grounds and crushed up eggshells, and the snails just like throw out a bit of extra slime and they go right over it. Mm. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It doesn't work. Yeah. So I think the, co- the copper tape, whilst it is expensive and probably um, – only good if you've got potted specimens because mm. otherwise it, it's very difficult to put copper tape on the ground. Yeah. Um, Could you yes, put the copper good. tape around the trunk of the tree? Yeah. That, I think that's you how you could. do it, isn't it? Yeah, you could. Yeah. I've had uh, my mandarin tree has had a absolutely fantastic year. It has borne so much fruit. I've been putting mandarins in buckets and just putting them out the front yard and everyone that walks past like I've done I've lost count of how many times this winter that I've done that yeah and thankfully they're not they're nice and juicy this year I wouldn't put them out if they're all dry and gross (laughs) but I was picking some the other night and it was only about three pieces of fruit so first time I've come across it it was a half eaten piece of fruit so something and I'm thinking it it's snails has eaten half of the fruits are eating the rind and then it's just gone into the inside of the fruit and completely hollowed out and eaten all the flesh. Rat. They're on really they were on really fine branches mm-hmm. that I think would just snap if a rat was mm. was sitting on there. Mm-hmm. Um if it, yeah if it was a more woody branch I'd s- say it was rat because I did that mm-hmm. was an option but they're on really small little twiggy bits. Um, I took a couple of photos and I'll, I'll send them to Liz afterwards and see if <laughs> send them to the three CR gardening show. See if they know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, because I, I'm pretty sure it's snails, but uh, yeah, they were just perfectly hollowed. Need to get out. out there at night and have a look. Yeah. Well. Yep. I can't be bothered. Not going to be <laughs> solidified to the couch. If you can't prune your your dwarf peach tree, you're not getting out in the night to see I what's on your citrus. I am horrendous when it comes to veggie gardens and and growing food because I like to put plants in and watch them grow. Whereas um, veggie gardens and food plants require a little bit more attention and maintenance (laughs) than I'm willing to output, which is terrible. So 
I'm. But you had a good veggie garden last year. I do, uh, but was I was that by default? Yeah, yeah, I don't do much to it. I sort of put them in and just and and hope and they hope. go. Yep. Yeah, and keep the water up to them. Make sure there's compost, fresh compost, and a really thick layer of pea straw, so I don't have to do the weeding because mm-hmm. my veggie garden is very weedy. Uh, I think you're right about the snails, though, Chloe. I just did a live Google, and it, <laughs> thanks. And it does say that snails will eat citrus, oh. which I, I'm surprised by that. So yeah, I haven't seen it before, but I, I've heard of people having issues with lemon lemon trees and citrus eating them, yeah. and and Graham's Graham said the same thing. He's had snails attacking his citrus. Well, if Graham <laughs> has trouble with it, it's all over for the rest of us. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Perhaps some copper tape around the trunk will do the trick. I might have to. I might have Either to. Either that or get some ducks. <laughs> oh, I would love to have ducks. They have the yeah, best. They egg. love the snail. AB Bishop, can you get some ducks so that I can eat your duck eggs? <laughs> we do have ducks, but they're they're wild. Oh. <laughs> they're in the- <laughs> and they're currently uh, nesting in trees, which I always find rather odd. <laughs> Uh, you are listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name is Chloe Foster and with me today is the lovely A.B. Bishop, author and horticulturalist, uh, best-selling author of Habitat and the Waterwise Australian Native Garden, and Emma Heard, landscape architect and horticulturalist. Uh, if you have a question for us for Bernadette to put through to the studio, the number is 94190155. Uh, or the text. We haven't had any text messages come through. Can someone just please let us know that it's working? Um, the Good text point. number is 0488809855. And for those who want to send in an email, I know we have a lot of podcasters. The email address is gardening at 3cr.org.au. And that is the same email. You can send us any community announcements, any workshops or um that might be coming up and open gardens and all that when life can begin again. I have found some text messages, Chloe. Have you? Yeah. So I just refreshed the text stream and we've got an SMS here. It says, hi, gardening team. Can you suggest a plant for a 600 millimetre wide garden bed that gets very good sun? The plant needs to grow to a metre only and easy to maintain. That's Spiros from Williamstown. Williamstown. So, gosh, that's that's uh, very broad in very one broad. way, isn't it? So it gets to how tall? One meter. Uh, a meter. A meter. Okay. So a now I'm just uh, mentally walking around the small shrub yes. zone at Karanga yep. Native Nursery. Uh, where everything is looking amazing at the moment. It's really depressing not having customers in there because, oh, my goodness, the plants are popping with colour. Mm. Um, actually, that I was going to mention people should um, hop onto the Karanga Instagram page so yeah. you can just see what's in flower at any time of the year. And they are doing click and collect now, aren't they? Yeah, yep. yeah, or, or half-price half deliveries. But hopefully, fingers crossed, soon we'll be inundated with people. But, okay, so plant up to meet I mean, you could go. Uh, Banks, so your birthday candles. Yeah. Coria Elba. What about Philotheca? Yeah, there, there are Philotheca some small Philothecas. Yeah. yeah, beautiful. Grevilleas. There's the, like the Bonnie Prince Charlie. 
Firecracker. Firecracker. Um, Eromophilas. There's some beautiful uh, Eromophila maculata. And that would Um, go all right down in Williamstown. Oh, for sure, especially in in a sunny spot. And there's all different sorts of colours. There's purples and um, peaches and pinks and yellows, oranges. So that's Eromophila maculata. Uh, yeah, continuing my walk around the beds, um, there's things like um, there's the shrub form of Hardenbergia, which has got the really beautiful deep green leaves with the purple pea flowers. So that's the Hardenbergia violacea is usually a climber, but there's uh, a shrub form that's available. There's uh, three cultivars, Mima, Minihaha and Regent. Minihaha and, is one yeah, of my favourites. Yeah, they're cute. That's the, the smallest one yep. of the lot and it's got small leaves. Yeah. Um, the isopogon would do really well down there or over there, I should say, not down there, over there. Mm-hmm. Um, isopogon, that's in the Proteaceae family and it's got really sort of structural flowers, um, very pretty. Mm. There's a bunch that would do well in that there's situation. A yeah, um, there's a lot of, not, we, I'm we've sure just there's a few exotics there as well. Yeah, there'd be heaps of, heaps of exotics. Hebes? Yep. Yeah, that, Hebes would do really well. Lavender. Um, the, um, the abutilin, you know, um, yeah. the Chinese lantern. Yeah, yep. they, they can take the sun, actually. I always thought they preferred the shade, but I've grown some in the sun more recently and they do all right. Mm. Are they? Can you get small versions of them? I always thought yeah. of abutilins as being like two metres or more. You can get dwarf ones. Okay. There's a really nice red dwarf one, the hybrid escapes my my memory at the moment but um yeah garden good garden nurseries would have the dwarf ones mm. and salvias of course thrive in a beautiful yeah. sunny spot so yeah honestly so many too many and what buddleyers buddleyers oh yes for all the um all the little butter the butterfly bush yeah. that's a common name yeah. yeah um there has been a lot of text messages come through this morning i do apologize i haven't refreshed the screen um one, Mari in Newport says, great to hear Emma recommend that snails are good for the environment. They definitely have a role in our gardens, so consider relocating rather than mass slaughter. <laughs> good one. Relocate to your neighbours. Mari or Marie. Um, uh, Roger, and I th- that is that is definitely Roger Elliott. Good morning, crew. If Tradescantia is very thick and growing on sites that have plenty of organic mulch, you can roll it up like carpet and then cover it with black black plastic that will solarise it. Um, oh, then you. check the site regularly for regrowth, speaking from personal experience. Mm, like that idea. Um, now, there's a few people that have sent through um, images to the text line. I'm really sorry we can't see those images on the screen here. It's coming. The text messages come through on a on a program for us and the images don't show up. So if you do want to send an image with a question, um, you'll have to email it to gardening at 3cr.org.au. Uh, we don't we won't usually we can't usually access emails while we're running the show but if you can send that photo and your question we can definitely get to that question next week um emma can you see on your screen can you see some more text some of the older text messages um can you scroll down perhaps so i've got one that says um this is john from hurstbridge he's got a 20 meter long by four meter wide um, sloped area facing east, so morning sun. Um, it's 30 degrees slope. 
and he wants to plant a spectacular native flowering ground cover. Um, the spot is very visible to an entertaining area. At the moment, he's thinking of Grevillea Purianda Royal Mantle. Beautiful. That yep. is open to any suggestions. Yeah. Where, where did you say? Hurst oh, Hurstbridge. Hurst yep. um, well, any of the ground cover acacias. So mm. there's um, Acacia Karanga Cascade. It's beautiful. Um, that's quite one. flat to the ground. And Acacia Bailiana, the Cootamundra wattle, the prostrate form of that, but that, that can get can a bit get of a height, bit height to it. Yeah. That sort of becomes yep. almost a small to medium shrub, yep. so maybe not. Actually, one of the plants I brought in today <gasps> would yes. be very suitable, and that's, this is the um, – it's called yellow buttons is the common name. It's Chrysocephalum apiculatum, and that forms a really dense mat, and it literally has flowers all through the year, uh, would be – it's indigenous to so many different areas in Australia and so obviously would be indigenous to Hurstbridge. Uh, I know that for a fact. And so that's Chrysocephalum apiculatum and you can get different uh, forms of it as well because depending on where it grows naturally in the country, it um, sometimes has got really um, – large grey yep. leaves, other times it's got greener leaves. Um, some of the um, varieties might get up to about 30 centimetres tall. Others are extremely flat to the ground. Uh, so that's certainly one that he could consider. But, yeah, the Purinda Royal Mantle is fantastic. There's, yep. um, there's, there's a bunch of uh, really good spreading grevilleas that um, – oh, what's the obvious one? Um Oh, I mean, there's there's carpet queen, which is a yellow carpet flaring queen. One. Is beautiful. The rambler, 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 bush rambler. Is it bush? No, not bush rambler. Oh my goodness, I can't Aussie believe. rambler, bronze rambler, bronze rambler. That's it. Thank you, bronze rambler. Is fantastic. That'll go for three meters or more. Yep, uh, really good. And if you want some smaller ground covers, um, Lithodora diffusa mm. near the chrysocephalum would be really nice contrast yellow with. Lithodora is blue. Mm. Um, and another blue one is um, Damperia diversifolia. That one's really beautiful. I just love blue. So yeah. <laughs> Blue and yellow is a classic combination, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's um, there's the running postman, the Canidia prostrata, which would do really well in that situation. Uh, there's the Myoporums, the mm. uh, Creeping Bubialas. They would do really well. Mm. Uh, Scavolas, Herbertia. Yeah, the, there's a bunch that would do well. Yeah. But if you want vigorous, like acacia or grevilleas, there's even ground cover banksias yep. as well, yeah. the roller yep. coaster and pygmy possum. Yeah, roller coaster, that gets a little bit of height, so that might get up to even sort of 40, 50 mm. centimetres. But as the name suggests, it's really crazy in habit, mm. roller coastery habit, and it's got those incredible banksia mm blooms which the birds absolutely go nuts for we are on a roller coaster right now emma is there any other text messages that we missed i do apologize to people that have been sending them in i've missed them Whoopsie. uh we've got any suggestions for great tasting plum trees from sue oh yikes no but graham if you're listening <laughs> yeah Tasting plum tree. No, I'm not sure. Oh, would, the, uh, the golden. Oh, that's really hard. Most home, any homegrown plum is beautiful. Mm. Um, the golden plums are really nice. Um, you could send us an email, and we could ask Graham Morrison to suggest some. Um, Satsuma is a good blood plum. Yeah, that one's really popular. 
Um, or I would call up Rainer's Orchard up in yeah. Hoddle's Creek and speak to them about the ones that they recommend for being the most tasty. Mm-hmm. Um, another couple of people have called in. Sue from Lilydale has got lots of fruit trees planted, um, but only one of them has leaf curl, wondering why this one is attacked. Um, leaf curl only affects peaches and nectarine trees. So yeah. I'm not sure what type of trees you've got, Liz. Um, but if it's it won't peach leaf curl won't attack pe- um, apples no. or quinces or anything else. It'll only attack peaches and nectarines mm-hmm. and and almonds. Oh, does it, it does? Yeah, get almonds. but they they think it's maybe it's a different bad. species. Yeah, uh, because the 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 tephrina that affects um, peaches and nectarines yep. doesn't affect almonds, whereas the one the tephrina that affects almonds doesn't affect. So a different species yeah. of fungus. Yeah. Uh, Lois from Mitcham wants to say all the girls are doing an amazing job. Thank you, Lois. Thanks, Lois. Um, she encourages everyone to keep growing fruit trees and encouraging women in horticulture. Oh, thanks, Lois. Thanks, Is that your mum, Emma? No. no. <laughs> my mum's name is Liz. Oh, hi, Liz. Hi, Liz. <laughs> you say hi to my mum too. Hi, Deb. Um, line, oh, no, Michael from Forest Hill has a big snail problem. He said they seem to go to higher ground just before it rains. He's mm. seen them up in his acacia trees as well. Gosh. My goodness. Yeah. Must mm. be a, snails. It's the season for snails. Yeah. Uh, Peter has sent in a text message saying that his mum always put tin foil around the bottom of their citrus trees to keep the snails off. Ooh, that's interesting. Mm, so it could be cheaper than copper. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> copper Definitely is... a first first try. I reckon I'd go with the tin foil. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Someone messaged in and said they've got several couriers which don't flower. I would think maybe they're not getting enough sun. Oh, no, because couriers do well in – it depends what they are. If it's courier mm. alba, certainly needs, needs sun. more sun. Mm. Uh, but if it's – so the courier alba tend to have the rounder, almost grayer leaf mm. um, and with star-like flowers, whereas the other couriers tend to have the bell-shaped flowers. Um, yeah, that that is really odd. I've don't think I've ever heard of a You could try applying a low phosphorus fertilizer. Yeah, just a native fertilizer. Give yeah. it give it a bit of a prune. You could prune it now, certainly, because they're they're not flowering at the yeah. moment. Or even just, you know, push the mulch away and sprinkle some compost around if you've got it. It might need mm. might need a bit of a boost. Mm. But yeah, couriers usually do flower oh, yeah, in low such light. Good performers, which is yeah. Why they're good for that. Mm. Um that's a bit of an odd one. Yeah. A conundrum. Mm. Uh, if Roger Elliott's listening, he might know. Send us a message, Roger. <laughs> I think we're up to date with our text messages now. Oh, excellent. Good. And as, as I just said before, if you are wanting to send in photos, we can't actually see the photos on our screen in the studio. Uh, you'll have to email them in. Um, it's a bit of a complicated process to get the photo up for us to view in the studio. So send them to our email address, which is gardening at 3cr.org.au, and we will do our best yeah, to get to it. Next week's there's Stevens on with Millie and Clive Larkman from Larkman's Nursery. So uh, a lot of knowledge a- there. Emma, what have you got? I've got a final favourite plant that I've brought in. It's 
it's what I call a really good value plant mm-hmm. because it, it ticks a lot of boxes. It's got a cheery yellow flower. <laughs> it's got a great fragrance and it flowers for a really long time and the bees love it. So it is Tagiti's Lamonii. Oh, and yes. Also known as the passion fruit marigold. And the reason being is its foliage smells really lovely like passion fruit. So I like to have it by a walkway or somewhere that um, it's great for a sensory garden Mm -hmm. and near a walkway where you brush past it because you get that beautiful fragrance of passion fruit. And that flowers from now right through the summertime. So I think it's a great value plant and really easy to take a cutting of, Mm -hmm. pop it in the ground. And it's good for um, the budget conscious gardener. Mm -hmm. How big does it get in? It can get really tall. It can get to two metres if you Mm -hmm. let it. Mm -hmm. Um, It can get quite rangy. Loves the full sun, puts up with the heat, no worries. Um, But I chop mine back at the end of flowering season. Mm -hmm. Really, you can chop it down to 300 300 millimetres or, um, yeah, keep it as a small shrub. It's very responsive to pruning as well. Mm. A bit like a salvia. I was going to say, that's oh. what I do with my salvia lacanthas every yeah. year. I hack them right oh, yeah. down to need it. Yeah, 15 centimetres high and uh, they away they spring again. Mm. <laughs> Emma, you just mentioned sensory before. Mm. A couple of your recent projects have been involved with the Royal Botanic Gardens. Mm. Can you tell us about them? Yeah, sure. So one of them was the sensory garden. Yes, at the an Salvia. amazing job. <laughs> It's beautiful. I can't take all the credit. So um, Andrew Laidlaw is the the landscape architect there and I worked in collaboration with him and Andrea Proctor, who I still work with now. So they were both on the design team and and pioneered the project from the very beginning. Mm. And I was involved mostly in documentation phase. So um, they came up with the concept and um, we ran with it. So Um, really beautiful array of sensory plants in that Mm. garden. And also um, because it's right near the water and it's at the end of the um, fern gully. So um, if you've been to that garden before, you'll, you'll know that the fern gully has a lot of sensory elements in it as well. So it's, it's a lovely part of the garden to come out from a very enclosed space and into this much more open area across the footpath and to look out over to the water of the lake. Mm. it's beautiful what what other plants do they have in there so there's um there's lots of gorgeous little um fragrant geraniums in there Mm. so you can and and herbs so you can the the main original concept was that people could even take their their shoes off and go for a walk amongst things like there's ground cover thyme lovely and and lots of different ones so Mm. Maybe not so great during COVID times, but hopefully in the future people will be able to stomp around a little bit more on those garden beds and really get the fragrances Mm. happening. Um, Because pretty much everything planted in there, if you you go up and give it a rub or Mm. get your nose into one of the flowers, they all smell incredible. Yeah, they're absolutely beautiful. I love that little sensory garden. It's been such a good addition. Yeah, and there's so many types of thyme. I don't know if people yeah. are very familiar with thyme, but there's there's like tens of 
probably in the hundreds of yeah. different types of thyme. And I love so. it when they flower. They've got such cute, tiny little flowers. Mm. Yeah. 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 Such a tough plant, my goodness. I've won, I have a thyme plant in a terracotta pot and I don't water it and it just keeps growing back. I call the and never giving plant. you another plant, Chloe. <laughs> yeah, and if you want to get rid of your lawn but still have a nice open space that you can walk on, thyme. Ah, yep. great yep. idea. Different types of ground cover thyme and, and chamomile, German chamomile. Really good lawn replacements. Yeah. Great idea. Great idea. Thanks, Emma. We're running through for We've only got a couple of minutes left. Uh, Michael from Caulfield was given some clivias. Should he cut the down the leaves before planting? I would say no need to bother about that. No. No? Unless they're, unless they're very yellow leaves, but if they're healthy. Yeah, if they're healthy, just plant them up. Yeah. Um, and he's got some cannas. Do you deadhead them now? Yes, deadhead them as, as the flowers die off and go right down to the base of the plant. Um, Graham Morrison, thank you, Graham, has rung up again with some plum recommendations. Uh, Mariposa is a large, delicious and self-pollinating blood blood plum. So that's Mariposa, M-A-R-I-P-O-S-A. Thank you very much, Graham. Thanks, Graham. Graham. We love you. Um, And I must say a quick apology to Mim. We haven't answered her text messages. I do apologise, Mim. Um, We did have a lot of text messages come through really quickly and a couple of them I must have missed. Um, If you can send them through next week, we'll have a go um, at answering those again. Um, Listener John from Bond Bond Beach, um, loving the show this morning. You mentioned Andrew Laidlaw. He was on Gardening Australia this weekend, and he was. It was he was on the um, Garden Path um, segment. So that's up on YouTube. Oh, was that his garden? I, I can't it. remember. I have to. I have to uh, watch that. Yeah, yeah I missed I it. Watch it. Yeah. Ah, oh, daylight good. savings throws everything out. Yeah, let's just blame <laughs> daylight savings. Um, just quickly, girls, what have you got to do? What's coming up for work this week? Um, I'm helping, working on documenting um, a far north Queensland garden up here at the um, at the Botanic Gardens up here in Alinda. Beautiful. That's um, a pretty exciting project. Next time you're on, we'll have to quiz you about that because mm. you were telling me about it recently and I'm very intrigued. Yes, it's going to be a lovely garden and um, helping to adjoin with um, Philip Johnson's garden. So that will get built and then this will also join in to the the main garden. Fantastic. Exciting. AB, what about you? Uh, Working, I'm at at Karanga one day a week on Saturday. So when when we're open again and people want to um, get down and have some advice or work out what to plant, come down on a Saturday and have a yak with me. Yep. Heckle me. Please heckle me. I'm being heckled (laughs) over the phone, which I love, but it's just not quite the same as um, dragging people around the garden Mm. and, uh, yeah, inspiring them. Well, that's about it for today. Thank you for all our listeners for contributing this morning and joining in on the show. Thank you to AB and Emma for chatting to me so I wasn't here by myself, talking to myself, which is what I usually do these days anyway. Uh, Thanks to Burn for taking all the calls and keeping us in line. Thank you to Liz for doing the social medias as always and thanks to the staff at the radio station for helping us keep this online format going. So we'll be back next Sunday morning at 7.30. Until then, we'll see you next week. Bye.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.